You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 129, covering the week of July 9th through July 13th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, all the usual things. You can follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. You can like us on Facebook at Abbeville Institute. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you don't want to find all those things, just go on out to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll find all our social media buttons. And while you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell. Also remember that we exist on your generous contributions alone. And so if you'd like to help us continue what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, you can do so by, at the top of the page, you'll see a button that says support. Under that, you have donor options. You can use our, no, our new do, donor interface, excuse me. You can donate as little as $3 a month if you're a student or $5 a month if you're not a student or $25 a year if you're a student or $50 a year if you're not a student. And you can help us continue our mission, help us keep the podcast going, the lights on, help us provide for our conferences, our website, all the things that we do that are all free, by the way. Uh, we provide uh, a fabulous website that has well over a thousand articles for free. I mean, this is an amazing thing. And so anything you want to do to help us is greatly appreciated. Also remember that you can download our app from your favorite app store, whether it's Google uh, Play or iTunes, and you can have Abbeville Institute on the go. So that's also free, going out there to your favorite uh, uh, store and pick that up. And of course, you can get your Abbeville Institute merchandise at the top of the page again, where it says support. You have, a you have an option for shop, and you click on that, and you will take be taken to our uh, apparel store where you can buy your hats, shirts, golf towels, a lot of cool stuff out there. So go on out and get that material as well. It's all embroidered, so it's uh, going to last a long time. It's not screen printed. It's embroidered material, and so it's very, very nice. We've got our summer school coming up this next week. I'm really excited about that. Uh, I will be podcasting live from the summer school. So if you're hearing this before the summer school, the next podcast will actually be live, so you can hear what's going on there. I'll, actu I'll actually be doing some interviews I hope to be interviewing uh, Bobby Horton for our banquet uh, during before our banquet uh, presentation. So there's going to be a lot of great stuff coming up in the podcast. Some of those will probably be bonus episodes. Um, so if you do like this podcast, be on the lookout for those. All that said, uh, don't forget that uh, when you do give us that email address, you get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email Saturday or Sunday with a link to this podcast. So. Uh, when you give us that email address, you get in touch with us on a daily basis just about. Again, with all of this free material. All of it's free. Amazing, amazing stuff. I think we have the best uh, Southern website on the Internet, um, without question. A lot of great stuff. So uh, please continue to support our mission. Um, we do appreciate anything you can do for us. Okay, well, let's talk about this week because we had a lot of interesting material this week. And again, it's bookended um, with a nonfiction piece, and then a fiction piece. It's something that we've done quite a bit before we've run a fiction. And Paul Yarbrough is one of our uh, fiction writers. He does a fantastic job with that. And he wrote a, uh, a piece on Friday entitled, I Heard a Voice. And it works very nicely with the piece that we ran on Monday. 
So let's start with that Monday piece. It's written by one of the Kennedy brothers, um, and it's entitled, Is Dixie a Captive Nation? So Ronnie Kennedy wrote this. And he points out, this is, a, a, I guess, Captive Nation Week. I mean, it's when, he, when he sent this to me, he said, uh, this is Captive Nation Week, so would you mind running this? And he brings up the fact that the, that the South has been occupied since the end of the war. And this is based on the idea that, of course, for four years, the southern states were independent. And they lost that independence when they lost the war, but they never lost their cultural identity. Now, we can certainly say that um, when you look at, again, what's exploring what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, that that cultural identity has been watered down, it's been eroded, uh, it's under attack on a constant, ba- on a daily basis, which is why we do this, uh, which is why we do what we do, to try to, in- to uh, ensure that, that the valuable parts of Southern culture and Southern tradition don't go away. But... Um, Ronnie is, uh, is insisting here that the South, like other governments, has been occupied. Now, there were people that would scoff at this and say, well, but Southerners don't really care. They're participating in Congress and et cetera. They're, they're not uh, just uh, under some type of military governor. Certainly after the war, they were. They were not participating in Congress. I mean, if you look at Reconstruction, and they, <laughs> for, for much of the period of time, Many of those states were under military occupation. They were under the force of bayonets. Uh, they were not allowed to participate in the general government until they did certain things that allowed them to be full-fledged participants again. Uh, and so, just because that ended, and just because people acquiesced and said, okay, well, we're going we're to participate in this government again, doesn't mean that certain elements of the South have not been captive, quote-unquote captive. And I'm again, this gets down to culture. The only section in the United States that anybody can pick on on a regular basis and make jokes about and say that they're terrible are Southerners. Uh, it wasn't always this way. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm going to point out in my talk uh, next week about music is that for a long period of time, uh, particularly in the early 20th century, Northerners talked about how much they loved the South. They loved it. They loved so many things about the South, and it was Southern culture that they loved more than anything else. They wrote about it all the time. The South is great. It's got all these, it's warm. The people are nice. The food's great. It's got great music. It's a slow, easy-paced lifestyle compared to what we have in the North. It's cleaner. The air is cleaner. It's wonderful down there. I want to go back to Dixie. I can't wait to get down to Dixie. And that was the case, I think, for most of the 20th century. And even to this day, with the reverse diaspora that's taking place, I mean, in the the early 20th century, you uh, you had a diaspora from both white and black Southerners moving out of the South into other parts of the country, millions of people. And now there's been a reverse trend of that people coming back the other way, particularly African-Americans who are moving back in the South in large numbers because they don't like the cities of the North. But uh, certainly Southern culture has been uh, watered down, eroded. Uh, It's under tremendous pressure 
because of outside forces and people saying that it's backwards, Southerners are, are backwards people, they're stupid. And uh, industrialization, the New South, this process of the New South, you know, in, in, in the postbellum period, there was people like Henry Grady standing up and saying, we're a New South, we, we, uh, we love the Old South, but the New South is better because, uh, of course, we have industrialization. It's one of the things he was a champion of. And, of course, one of the reasons why he's doing that is to try to get northern capital into the South to help rebuild it. Um, you could make a case, this is kind of a side note, in World War II, you had people like George Marshall, uh, who had, uh, was very aware of what happened in the South during Reconstruction. And there is a theory that uh, one of the reasons why you had the Marshall Plan is because uh, Marshall knew what would happen if you destroyed a region. He's from the South. If you destroy a region and you don't rebuild it. He knew what would happen if uh, you impoverished people and you didn't help them back up. And so this was part of the drive for the Marshall Plan, for the United States to go out and rebuild these areas that had been so thoroughly devastated by World War II. Not just to create allies, but as a humane thing to do. And we can, we can quibble over how much money should have been spent. Should we still be spending this money? And should NATO still exist? And all these things that were byproducts of the Cold War. And the Marshall Plan can be viewed as a, as a byproduct of the Cold War as well. You know, People were concerned about the rise of communism in Europe and Asia. But I think there was also some, there is something to this, I think. And a Southerner like Marshall saying, you know, this is the humane thing to do. We can't just destroy an area like we did in the South. Now, he doesn't say that, but I, that's on his mind, I believe. You can't just destroy an area and then not help rebuild it. And that was not the Reconstruction plan. It was root, hog, or die. And then, of course, when you had uh, the push for industrialization and the drive to get foreign capital, that's going to change the economy of the South. It's going to change the character of the South. And so that's where Paul Yarbrough's piece comes in, this little fictional piece, I Heard a Voice. It's about a, I'm not going to steal the, 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 the plot of the piece, or at least what happens, but it's about a, uh, some, some bankers, industrialists looking out over the South, looking out over the land, and a Southerner comes up, and he says he doesn't have a country anymore. He's lost his country. And the conversation there and what happens, I think it really is, it's, it's an amazing piece. Um, he asked when he, when he emailed me, do you get my point? Of course. I mean, it's, it's an amazing piece, and I think people should go read it. A great little short story. But that depression that Southerners felt, I mean, it was, it was said after the war, you didn't find anyone in the South that actually smiled. People wore black. It was a hard time to be part of uh, the southern states. And when you go back, there was a, uh, a collection of primary materials by the Dunning School uh, authors entitled A Documentary History of Reconstruction. And this thing is, is, is uh, often derided because it's uh, you know, 20th, early 20th century, it's racist, all these other... Th it, it's just a collection of primary materials and there was an interesting piece in there, um, a story of a, of a plantation owner who was uh, who survived the war, of course. He's an old man. And he, um, he was out trying to chop his own wood, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. But he was going to try to do it because he had to try to provide for his family after the war's over. 
Uh, and this is the kind of thing that pe- he couldn't he couldn't get anybody to work on his farm anymore. It was it was a really hard time for him. But yet here he is, this guy, old man, with blisters on his hands, trying to chop his own wood just to survive. And a lot of Southerners were facing that, just surviving, just get through it. How do you get through this transitionary period? Now, not everyone was facing it. It was uh, if you if you read, uh, I don't know if I talked about it in the podcast. I can't remember if I talked about. Uh, John Muir's travels through the South from Indiana to the Gulf of Mexico. And um, some of the things he came across. He came across a farmer in, uh, in Georgia, uh, a plantation owner, former plantation owner, that had actually gone out and, and sunk all of his equipment into a lake. And all his former slaves were still on the plantation, and they were, uh, he was paying them now. And he said, actually, this is a good thing. It's cheaper for me to pay him than it was for me to, to, uh, to provide for him like I was. And they're trying to get the equipment out of the lake. And he did it because he didn't want the, the marauding Yankee army to come through and find his equipment. But what's also interesting is that uh, he talks about how he, he has to stay at this uh, plantation house. You know, Muir didn't have any place to stay, and he's just trying to live off the, uh, off the, off the kindness of strangers. And eventually they, they allowed him in. But they talked about how, uh, before that, another traveler had come through and stolen all their stuff. And so they were very suspicious about Yankees coming in and staying with them. And, and, and Southerners were willing to do this, but um, how they were, they were very suspicious about people coming through because of the threat of theft. Now, Muir is better known as the founder of the Sierra Club and maybe the modern environmentalist movement. And here he is talking about, uh, you know, these, and, he, and he, was, he had some very, what we would consider to be racist statements today about uh, black Southerners. Um, and he also talked about all the snakes he came across in the South. And it's just, uh, <laughs> as he's traveling around the Chattahoochee River and all these snakes he's having to deal with, rattlesnakes and other things. And uh, he's going, he's walking from Indiana to the Gulf of Mexico. And it's an interesting travel journal, but of course, uh, the left won't put this out there because it, portrays Muir in a pretty negative light in terms of his views on race. But I found it interesting and fascinating because of his description of some parts of the South. Uh, he talked about Athens quite a bit, but what, what it was like for Southerners trying to rebuild that section as a captive nation and how they were losing their country when you got to the New South. Now, the when, you, when Southerners started being concerned with, with the stock market more than the cotton market, I mean, the South had changed. And I think that's what, uh, what Paul Yarborough is trying to get to in this piece, I Heard a Voice, and it has that religious aspect to it. It's, it's the main char- one of the main characters sings a Christian hymn during the, during the piece, and it's a powerful draw to what, in, in, in Mr. Yarborough's mind, is traditional Southern culture and how it's being assaulted by outside influences, whether it's banks or industrialization, the land is being taken over. It's a reminder of what was lost and what is under attack. And this is what the agrarians were talking about in the 1930s. What was under attack in the South was that traditional provincialism, that agrarianism, that tie to the land, that tie to people in place, to kith and kin, uh, that's what was being lost, and I think that um, this is why in my own my own podcast, in, in the Brian McClanahan show, I talk about think locally, act locally. I mean, that's what I'm driving home. And people get this. 
And what's interesting is you have people that get it but don't understand that this really is, more than anything else, a Southern tradition. Now, it's not to say that other people aren't, aren't happy with where they live. They aren't happy with the place that they're from. And even the agrarians uh, talked about, uh, you know, how there, there was a Northern culture. It existed. I mean, and, uh, uh, how that, uh, you know, New Englanders had an interesting culture in and of their own right and people that were very provincial in New England. And it was something to to admire and hang on to. What they didn't want was that imperialism, that type of cultural imperialism, to abridge and and destroy Southern culture. They didn't want that to happen. And that's the thing. I mean, if you if you had people in America, North, South, West, wherever it is, just simply worry about their own backyard, their own front porch, their own people in their own place. You wouldn't have the problems that we have in the United States today. It's all about cultural imperialism. It always has been. And that cultural imperialism, culture produces political culture, it produces the economic culture. It's cultural imperialism that's the problem. And so as you have one section or one people try to dominate another, you have cultural imperialism. And in the antebellum period, you had a strong New England cultural imperialism. So everything can be viewed in that lens. It's about power. It's all about power. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, Dixie being a captive nation, I heard a voice where these two pieces fit nicely together. And then also the piece for Wednesday, uh, which is uh, Saving Architectural Treasures of the Old South. It's written by Robin Lattimore. He talks about how important it is for architecture to be part of the fabric of Southern tradition and Southern culture. And we, we miss that. I mean, Southern tradition and Southern culture is more than just food and music. And while those things are important, we're having a whole summer school on music, and we, we should have it on all the elements of Southern culture that really make it what it is. There's also architecture. This is an interesting, um, I think, interesting topic in this. If you If you go back... And just, just using music as, a, as an example of this in one way. If you go back and look at uh, music and album covers, and I always found album covers to be amazing pieces of art because it's a window into what people were thinking about a time or a place or what was important and how their music fit. And uh, a friend of mine and I were at, in a, a used bookstore a few weeks back, and we were they had some old records in there. And we were looking at the records, and we pulled up a record, or he did, he found it first, by Seals and Crofts. Kind of a 1970s pop group. Um, and they had an album entitled Taking It Easy. Taking It Easy. And the album cover was Seals and Crofts in front of a plantation house. And then you open it up and they've got all these pictures of you know fishing in the South and sitting sipping mint juleps in the South. In the 70s, it was seen as plantation homes. It was Taking It Easy. And, and plantation homes, there was another, you know, the Allman Brothers Band, their first album, they're standing in front of an antebellum home, and it's a ruin, essentially. There's columns. It is a southern ruin. You see, nowhere else in America... Well, I, I take that back. I mean, you look at Detroit and how you have the, the falling... The, Detroit is falling down. The, the decay in Detroit. It, it, the ruins of Detroit are interesting. Some of these architectural treasures of, of Detroit that were interesting. But in the south, you have something. The architecture means something. 
and you have these ruins like you wouldn't say Greece or Rome. It's the ruins of a past culture. And so there's nowhere, nowhere else in the United States that people try to preserve the architecture to preserve the culture of the time, the culture of the period. Nobody goes to the north and says, I want to tour northern homes. I mean, sure, you certainly you have some interesting homes in the north. Some of the people that uh, uh, in the Gilded Age that produce these marvelous mansions. There's no question about that. I mean, you had that. You know, for example, you had uh, uh, the uh, some of the famous homes in, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, or in the Hudson River Valley. But uh, in the South, I mean, people will go out of their way just to go tour these these Southern homes, these architectural treasures, because it it speaks of a time and a place and a people unique in American history, a culture unique in American history. So these architectural treasures are vital to understanding the Old South and, by default, Southern culture, and then, by default, the New South and what we think about these things. And so when you go in and you tour these homes, unfortunately now you have contextualization. It's as if the people that live there, that own the home, that built the home, didn't even exist. And that's the context. All you'll get is that... Um, uh, yes, this is uh, James Mad Jane, the Madison family. I've I've seen this uh, in a piece on on James Madison's home, for example. The Madison family occupied the house. Occupied the house. They didn't they didn't own it. They didn't build it. They occupied it. And the people that were important in that, of course, were the slaves that lived there. Uh, not the Madison family. It's not the president of the United States. He just occupied the house. <laughs> it's the terminology that's used now that's so striking in this. And it's unfortunate these that uh, you know these treasures of the old South are under assault in many from many different directions. Whether it's because they're falling down, and a lot of them were destroyed, uh, burned down. There was a beautiful old plantation home in Northern Virginia that was burned down by the fire department there, just for practice in the 1960s. Can you imagine? The, the fire department went out and said, "Okay, we need to have a, you know practice in a house fire." So they burned down. A beautiful old plantation home, just to do it. And um, that's sad. That's a sad commentary on, on what was going on. This is in the 1960s now. This isn't, you know, last year. Uh, and when you look at Southern art, it's it's part of this. You look at this, the, the statues in, in uh, Charlottesville that are on the National Register of Historic Places. These, these statues, Jackson and Lee. And people forget that there's also statues that were designed by this, uh, paid for by the same benefactor of uh, George Rogers uh, Clark and Lewis and Clark. So it wasn't just Jackson and Lee. There are two statues that nobody talks about, built, uh, you know, paid for by the same individual on American history as well. And uh, But those are ignored. Those are ignored. Uh, so they're, they're part of American art. They're part of the fabric of American life and, of course, Southern life. And tearing them down tears down the, the, uh, the vitality of Southern culture and tradition. And the book review that, was, that we uh, had on Tuesday speaks of this as well, America of Flame. It's actually a book about the coming of the war by David Goldfield. And David Goldfield will never be confused to be someone who's pro-Southern at all. I, uh, his... I've used his textbook uh, in 
my American history courses. Um, and uh, he's, he's not pro-Southern. In some of the cases, he's pretty awful. But this particular book is, is interesting. Um, he's anti-war. In fact, he says, as, uh, he says that he's, he's, he's anti-civil war. So this is a book from an anti-war position written in 2011 in a time when people were discussing the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And is there a precedent here with um, uh, Americans and an anti-war tradition? And he says certainly there was. And he actually blames this war. And a lot of people took, you know, took offense to this in this review and said, well, I'll never read this because... Um, he blames the war on evangelicals, and they said he's not. He doesn't distinguish enough between uh, Puritans and other Christians. He does, um, and you know this is a short review. You have to get into the book, um, but he talks about how essentially the North uh, created this conflict, America aflame, and there was that. Very famous burnt-over district in uh, New York. And and then you had, of course, the he, he points back to the abolitionist movement as being this religious zeal, part of the religious zeal behind that, was destructive of America. Now, this is not a popular thesis, but Goldfield is a mainstream historian, and nobody gave him a lot of heat for this. I mean, it was, well, I mean, that's interesting, because Goldfield uh, is one of them, and he can do this. Of course, he, he doesn't, he's not laudatory of the South, but he is certainly very critical of the North and its complicity in bringing about the war. He, he basically says you cannot blame the entire war on the South. There has to be Northern complicity in this. There has to be something else to this. And so, look, this is, you know, it's not Ludwell Johnson. It's not, uh, it's not uh, Craven or Randall, who both wrote, Fantastic books. Craven, in particular, about the coming of the war. Craven is very even-handed. Avery Craven, uh, The Coming of the Civil War. It's a tremendous book. Uh, this book should go right along with that. And you're not going to find, again, a pro-Southern bias. And that's fine. You don't need that. In fact, it's, it's in some ways more effective to not have that, particularly when you're speaking to people who aren't interested in the South, it's like going after them with a scalpel rather than a chainsaw. Sometimes the smallest cuts make the most difference. Uh, it's, it's the argument. You're, you're taking apart the argument with a scalpel, not a chainsaw. And, or you're, you're hitting them with a ball-peen hammer, not a sledgehammer. You're waking them up gently rather than just bludgeoning their head in. And that's okay. I mean, that's we need that. You need nuance at times to persuade. A lot of times our articles are sledgehammers or chainsaws, but every now and then it's good to have that scalpel. It's good to have that soft kid glove approach to get people to understand, well, wait a second here. I mean, there's something else to this. And I think Goldfield does a good job with that. Again, you would never confuse him as being pro-Southern. He's very critical of the South, but he's also very critical of the North, and that's a good thing. And so you do have some of these historians, mainstream historians, who are starting to look at the North with a much more critical eye. 
and starting to examine northern again northern complicity and bringing about the war and so this book does a very good job of that and um, it's one that you should pick up even if you don't necessarily agree with everything he says you should pick it up because it it has a nice critique of the war and putting the burden back on the north where it belongs in reality for bringing about this war and of course the sectional conflict and then finally we had a very long piece written by Vito Musumeli uh Sam Houston and Texas Secession. It's an important topic to talk about Sam Houston because I think, you know, he is misunderstood. Houston was a constitutional unionist, essentially. I mean, he, there was some discussion about making him their presidential nominee in 1860, and they picked John Bell of Tennessee instead. Uh, he was a Southerner. I mean, Houston was one of the most important individuals in Southern history, the guy, one of the heroes of the Texas independence movement. Of course, he opposed secession. And this piece does a nice job in bringing out why. He was also very critical of Abraham Lincoln. He's very critical of the Republican Party. He, he was a pure Southerner, but he did not think that the dissolve in the Union was best for the South long term. And there were a lot of Southerners who thought this way. Um, and, I mean, you, you find that all over the South. You find it uh, in these individuals who thought, well, I mean, this is, this is going to be actually be destructive of the South if we secede. It's going to destroy us long term. It's not going to be beneficial, particularly if we lose the war, which a lot of people thought was going to come, um, and how that would be dangerous to the security of the South. It wouldn't be beneficial. Uh, so understanding Sam Houston and understanding these Unionists at the time, I think, is an interesting part of, of Southern history. And, of course, Sam Houston being a real Southern hero, um, someone who was, you know, someone that people should know about and the South, someone that people should understand in the South, uh, and of course in Texas history. So Vito does a very nice job. It's a long piece, again a long piece, and it's full of, of uh, primary material. Um, it's well worth your time to read it and to try to under, better understand uh, Sam Houston and his role in the, uh, not just in the 1860s, but also before that as a real son of Virginia and then a son of Texas. Uh, and how that uh, Southern culture was so important in his life and his viewpoints. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, this podcast. Again, the next one is going to be a live podcast. It's not going to be broadcast live, but I'll be recording it live. So we'll have a live audience. And uh, it'll be fun. Hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy that podcast 130. Then it's going to be a special episode. And we'll have some other episodes that are going to be interviews uh, that will be uh, you know kind of bonus episodes. Uh, in, in future weeks. So be on the lookout for those. But until next time, good day.